everyone. I am not Mike Rappin, as you may have noticed. (laughs) Mike Rappin is currently on a European adventure, which is very exciting. And uh, he is sending us X-Men updates from afar, if you follow him on social media. So uh, today we have three, well, two very wonderful people and me talking to you on the I Read Comic Books podcast. I have today with me Paul. Hello. And Kara. Hey. And I will just go ahead and let's jump right into it. How have you been? How have comics been? Paul. Um, I have been good. Um, I haven't read a ton of comics, but luckily the quality has made up for the quantity in my reading this week. Obviously, past Monday, the 28th of August, was Jack Kirby's uh, birthday, the 100th anniversary of his birth, and it's only fitting that I read a ton of Jack Kirby comics this past week in celebration. A selection of those that I read includes Captain America number 193 through 200. This is the Mad Bomb story by Jack Kirby. These are comics that he did for Captain America when he went back to Marvel in the mid-70s. This is like 75, 76, and it's bonkers, crazy Jack Kirby comics, as you'd expect. It's about a group of uh, people called the Elite who are trying to return America to its pre-Revolutionary War status without democracy, or representative democracy. And of course, they all dress in powdered wigs and British uh, soldier uniforms. Naturally. and uh, Naturally. Uh, it's a great look. And um, they design a mad bomb, which is basically a giant bomb that will drive the populace crazy, therefore overthrowing the country. And of course, Captain America and Falcon, in an attempt to stop the mad bomb, have to engage in a type of rollerball-esque death um, roller derby competition, as you would. Um, so yeah, it's, that was a lot of fun. I was almost on board, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, let's return America to a time before colonialism but then you just I guess we were just going for that like very narrow time when it was like a colony (laughs) exactly specifically colonialism just that brief era so yeah yeah um not to spoil it but uh, of course Captain America and Falcon are successful but it was still fun I also read the Dark Side Oversized Special number one this is one of the one shots DC is doing to celebrate Jack Kirby's 100th anniversary it's a uh, dark side story by Mark Evaner and Scott Collins, and it's about this uh, group of a ragtag group of revolutionaries, I guess, who are trying to overthrow or fight back against uh, Dark Side. They call themselves the Resistance. It was oddly timely uh, given our current political climate, and um, there's also a backup OMAC story in that issue by Paul Levitz and Phil Hester, which was fantastic. Um, also read the Commandy Challenge number eight. Again, more Jack Kirby related stuff. This is by Keith Giffen and Steve Rude, and it's probably the best looking issue of Commandy Challenge yet. Commandy gets uh, trapped on an island populated by a group of goats who think that Commandy is Odysseus, finally returned home. Um, but there's also a group of wolves on the island who think Commandy is Ulysses, who's returned home. So they argue about what Commandy's real name is. Is it Odysseus or is it Ulysses? And it's a sort of allegory about religious belief and conflict, and but it looked lovely. Fantastic artwork by Steve Rude. But the one non-Jack Kirby-related book I read this week was The Art of Charlie Chan Hawk Chai by Sonny Liu, and this is one of the best comics I've read in a very long time. Um, this is the book that Sonny Liu won the Eisner for Best Writer slash Artist for, I think, last year or this, this past summer. It was just this couple months ago. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, so that's uh, I heard about that, so I decided to pick this book up, and it, it's wonderful. It's a well-deserved award because this is an incredibly unique and engaging comic. Basically, it's a story or a, a biography of a fictional comics artist from Singapore named Chan Hock Chai, and the book is presented like it's an actual autobiography. So there's interviews with Charlie Chan, Hawk Chai. There's segments or reproductions of his artwork, sketchbook type things, photographs from his childhood. And it's presented in a way that not only gives you a sense of his career, but a sense of what comics, how comics changed over time. And it gives you a very in-depth history of the political, cultural, and socioeconomic atmosphere in Singapore in those, you know, post-World War II years when Charlie Chan was growing up. So it's a book that is incredibly engaging, and it's a lot of diverse different art styles that Liu uses to tell the story, and it's incredibly well-researched. Even though the main character is a fictional character, the historical aspects of Singapore are all true to life, and there's a big section in the back where Sonny Liu describes exactly what what he's talking about gives you the history of Singapore. So it's a book that's a lot of fun to read, and you just might learn something while you read it. And I can't recommend it highly enough. So that's what was on my ta- table for this week. <laughs> uh, what about you, Kara? Um, so last week on the show, I talked about how I was really excited that I got ordered a copy of Dennis the Menace in California, which is an oversized Dennis the Menace special from 1965, where he and his family would like road trip in California. And I used to read it a lot as a kid. And so... Now that I'm moving to California, I was like, this is like my travel guide, essentially. (laughs) Like, I'm ready. (laughs) So that arrived and just like flipping through it. I just remember so vividly all these panels that I'm seeing. So I'm like super pumped to sit down and actually read it. And um, then because I was in like this like childhood reversion state where I was like remembering what it was like to read this book as a kid, um, I reached for kind of like a similar like more innocent time nostalgia type book um one of the owly comics um i was reading through the tiny tales um issue so uh owly is a series by andy runton and it's this really really cute uh series of stories about this little owl who's like basically a circle with little like like horned feathery things and like huge eyes and Owly just wants to like be friendly and nice to people but gets like really really sad if like the other forest creatures like seem like they're avoiding him even if they totally aren't and there's no dialogue in any of these stories it's just like facial expressions of all these woodland creatures and like sometimes speech bubbles filled with like pictograms or like basic images to like convey what's happening And it's all just so sweet. And I am not quite ashamed to admit that, like, I have teared up while reading these stories occasionally because they're just so heartfelt. And it's, like, super reminiscent of all these little innocent woodland creature childhood stories like Frog and Toad or Ant and Bee, like, things that you would read when you were really young. Um, But it's, like, definitely an all-ages book. And some of the concepts that they deal with are maybe like a little too complex for like super young readers some of the pictures are like a little too abstract but I absolutely love these stories and whenever it's like 
like today it's like kind of a rainy overcast day where I am and I'm just like I just want like a, a cup of tea and a really cute comic to read and not really have to think too hard and just kind of get like swept up and feeling like happy so that's where I was at well yeah it's really rainy and cold where I am too <laughs> I feel I feel really guilty because I'm watching all of my west coast friends just suffer in this heat wave which actually I'm going to have to be suffering through next week too because I'm going to Portland for Rose City Comic Con uh, so if you see me there say hey I'll, I'll have um, IRCB stickers Yay. and they're very cool so if you see me come hit me up for a sticker and also possibly bring me an ice pack because it's supposed to be like 90 degrees. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I have also been sort of snuggled down in a blanket with a cup of coffee and some comics. I uh, read Lady Killer. This is season two of Lady Killer issue number five. And it's by Joelle Jones and Michelle Madsen. And so you'll remember that Josie has kind of, she stakes out on her own to she has her own kind of like assassin business now and things aren't really going great for her. And then she finds out a super dramatic secret that her, about her mother-in-law's past. And it kind of brings her mother-in-law into her world, her sort of, you know, secret uh, assassin world. And I just, the action in this issue is like, holy shit, Josie is a badass. And so is her mother-in-law. And like, wow. And it's really sad at the end. Like there's a, there's a sort of plot twist that made me, just made my heart break for Josie. And uh, I actually don't know, I don't remember how many issues the first season of Lady Killer was. Was it just five? Do you remember, Kara? Were you reading this? Uh, I read it as a trade, but I don't think it was more than six. It wasn't super okay. long. So hopefully there's one more issue and they'll like resolve what happened at the end of this issue. I'm I'm trying to be a little vague because I don't want to spoil because, you know, you really need the full impact of it so that you too can be devastated for Josie. <laughs> who, like my my goal in life is to be as, as beautiful as, as if I were drawn by Joelle Jones, honestly. <laughs> Oh, no, I agree with you totally. When I read the first Lady Killer, my first impression was, why can't I make my eyeliner look like that? Oh, my God. <laughs> why can't I be that stylish? Like, Joelle Jones and mid-century modern, just, it's a beautiful match made in heaven. Uh, anyway, I will move on right <laughs> along to, uh, to another match made in heaven that we find in America number six. Uh, this one's by Gabby Rivera, Kelly Thompson, Ramon Villalobos, and Tamara Bonvillain. So uh, the reason why the creative cast has expanded is to accommodate the cast in the in the current story arc where America is hanging out with Kate Bishop because mm. obviously... Yay! <laughs> okay. I know. Yeah. And so, um, you know, America is in kind of a situation... And so Hawkeye needs to kind of help her out and needs to come rescue her. And she has some backup. And what what I love about this book so far throughout all six issues is how much it focuses on 
different kinds of relationships between women. There are just a multitude of feminine relationships represented in this book from family relationships to friendships to, you know, sapphic love, all of it. You just, you know, it's it's nice to see the different ways that women can relate to each other and, and love each other and, and support each other be represented in a single book. It's really powerful stuff. You, I don't... <laughs> I feel bad spoiling, but let's just say that uh, America is not as alone in the world as she thought she was when the series started. And we, and we, another aspect of that is revealed in this book. It's really great. I'll have to jump on this because I had no idea that Ramon Villalobos was drawing this book. So he's not. He's he was just guesting. I think that I Joe Quinone. Joe Canones was the main, or maybe, I mean, I don't know if they've switched over permanently, sure. but I think that it was just for the Katie, Kate hanging out issues. Well, I mean, here you have America, the main character in Kate Bishop and the cover for issue six. I just looked it up. It's an homage to Love and Rockets. Yeah. And it's so, Jim I mean, Bartel doing the covers. That's, that's like a perfect storm of stuff I like. So I'll have to yep. please check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so warning, feminist rant ahead. Bring it, and, I'm ready. And also mild spoilers for saga number 46. Okay, you have been warned. <laughs> Skip ahead like three minutes if you don't want to hear spoilers <laughs> or a feminist rant about saga. Uh, but right now in the story, Alana is pregnant, very, very pregnant. And recently... There was a fight, and the baby is pretty. But the baby is dead. It, but uh, she, so so she needs medical intervention to del- deliver the dead baby so that she doesn't die of sepsis, and she's currently unconscious. And so um, this is called a DNC, and uh, it's very. It's basically the same as a late term abortion in terms of like the medical procedure I think and in the real world it's very difficult to find people to do it because a lot of people are actually not being trained anymore to do these kinds of procedures because of how politicized uh, later term abortions are which is really messed up because it basically just means that women die and they don't need to so um, this is already a very fraught sort of story in terms of its real world political significance right and um, in in the story, Alana has already tried uh, and failed to obtain an abortion or a DNC. Uh, I th- actually, I don't think she was ever looking to get an abortion. And I really want to make that clear. Like a lot of um, poli- a lot of politicking about abortion uh, doesn't make the distinction. And I don't know. Like it's it is a different thing. The baby's already dead anyway. So. Uh, Marco has brought her to this place to get basically like the equivalent of a, I don't know, some kind of not back alley abortion, but definitely a um, n- not a licensed medical uh, procedure. Medical gray area. And um, and so all of a sudden Marco starts like 
philosophizing about how he's basically pro-life and he's sort of shaming the doctor for having performed a late-term abortion on this other patient who's there. And the doctor's like, well, the baby was going to be born really deformed and have like a very painful, short, horrible life. So really, like, it just was was what it was. And Marco's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in violence. I don't believe in war. I don't eat meat. Like, I don't believe in taking life. So I don't, like, Marco's like not all pro, uh, pro-choice. And, and then, and that's just kind of where it's left. And like, I, I'm really mad about this because I, I feel like you can't be equivocal about the bodily autonomy of women. Like if you're a moderate on this issue, then you are basically anti-choice. And Mm -hmm. I have a really hard time with when we muddy the issue by saying, well, but the baby would have been born deformed and died immediately. And, you know, or like really the only reason that we need to know for that woman is seeking an abortion is that she does not want to have the baby, like that she does not want to be pregnant. She does not want to bring a child into the world. Like her reason is her reason. And I've, I felt like this book is a really liberal book otherwise. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know if maybe they were trying to critique this point of view because like Marco's whole thing about being pacifist has caused a ton of problems throughout this book. And he has had a really hard time adhering to that, you know, very black and white view of, of these of issues of, of taking life. So I don't know if, we're supposed to sort of apply th- that history like of Marco's relationship with pacifism to to his view here. I I just felt like it was a really lukewarm defense of of having these procedures available and necessary it, and it it really uh, it really bothered me to read. Having Sorry, not read that it, was a long rant. No, it's okay. Like having no. not read it the thing that stuck out to me about your description is like you know this doctor is like working to save like the love of marco's life so like why is he going out of his way to like try to make this doctor feel bad about like what he's doing that just, i know like, yeah and the doctor says that too you know um but i just i wish that they hadn't justified it by by making the the fetus having had like you know birth defects like why couldn't it have just been like this woman needed an abortion the end you know Mm -hmm. like marco it's none of marco's business and it's none of anybody's business in the real world you know like either women have bodily autonomy or they don't and equivocating it is so it's such a dangerous slippery slope and i hate it when people I, i don't know like it's fine if you're a pacifist, but you just you don't get to m- make those decisions for other people. Right, right. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to keep reading Saga. I'm I'm like legit pissed off about this because it, it it was at best a very inelegant critique of that view, and it was at worst giving it a platform. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, is I mean, that that's... like the only reason that? you would consider dropping Saga or have there been like other stuff? Like I haven't read the last few issues, so I have no idea what's going on. 
it's really the only reason I need. I feel really strongly about it. And, you know, um, I, I, yeah, I don't need to, I'm not interested in, in reading or supporting books that are sort of wishy-washy about whether or not I, as a woman, am am a full-fledged human being. Mm. (laughs) I guess that's fair. Like, like your reaction to this is kind of reminding me of my whole struggle with like, I really loved rat Queens and now like, I can't like, I'm not following it because I just feel so uncomfortable about like the creative team backstory of everything that happened. Didn't they, I think that they switched to a new creative team. I, I mean, not to talk you back into reading it. I totally, I totally support people's decision. No, I mean, it's like this, like everyone, everyone who is yelling about censorship, it's like, you know, every, you can make whatever you make and then people have a right to decide they don't want to read it for whatever their reason. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm -hmm. if that's, if that's something that's just, that's a deal breaker for you and you can't read it anymore, then, then that's, then that's that, you know? Mm-hmm. I also read The Witches Mini in Image Plus. And How was it? Ho oh shit. Ho oh fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, this is going to be so amazing. This The second season? I don't know. The sequel? Volume 2? Whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. Matt Hollingsworth, genius. Jock, genius. Scott Snyder, genius. <laughs> so wait, what is this Image Plus magazine? Is it a... Is it- what is it? Uh, it's it's basically it's like I think like seventy pages of uh-huh. um, interviews or like short essays, previews about stuff that's coming up. Usually oh, there's okay. not yeah there's usually not there's was like an eight page mini, um, okay. and there's I, I feel like this is the that is a less common feature of Image Plus, but it's just mm-hmm. a neat magazine to sort of give you an insight, um, give you some insight about what's coming up. Okay, it yeah, sounds like, kind hmm. of like. A back matter type thing. <laughs> oh, oh, how fitting. <laughs> well, spoilers, Kara. <laughs> uh, okay, so should we move on to what we're excited about for next week? Yeah, let's Absolutely. do that. I'll go first because I am very caps locky about this. So next week, Captain Phasma number one comes out. It's like part of a mini series that Marvel is doing to kind of lead up to The Last Jedi, where you kind of find out what happened to Captain Phasma between the two films. And I have like an irrational appreciation for Captain Phasma because she basically did nothing in The Force Awakens and was super underutilized after all this merchandising hype about her. And, but because... So she's the Boba Fett of the new (laughs) movies. Right, but they, like, made her... Tried to make her into the Boba Fett of the new movies as opposed to it happening organically. So it was, like, such a huge letdown when the movie arrived and it was like, oh, you brought on Gwendolyn Christie to be, like, a awesome chromy stormtrooper leader and just have her get like 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 she has like two lines and one of them is just being like kidnapped by our heroes so that she could like lower the shields what is this so i am very excited that she at least gets 
some kind of story about her so I can know more about her so I can like feel good about owning three different action figures of her. <laughs> um, and Kara's dressed as Captain Phasma right now <laughs> as we record this. I mean, I almost wore that tank top that I have today that has her face on it. <laughs> just like, I just have so much appreciation and I get so frustrated because I feel like my appreciation has been manufactured by Disney and I really want it to feel more validated than that. <laughs> Um, well, Kelly Thompson and Marco Cicchetto, like that's that's a pretty solid start. It's a solid creative team. And I am like totally obsessed with Kelly Thompson's work on the Gem and the Hologram series over at IDW. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that she was writing, I was like, you know what? I'm sure it'll be fine. It should be fine. <laughs> I will love it, I'm sure. Because <laughs> I was like, yeah, Captain Phasma, I'm so there. Oh, I hope they don't have a mediocre creative team. Oh, my God, it's one of my favorite writers. So I'm like, here, I'm here for it. I'm ready. <laughs> Uh, how about you, Paul? Um, I'm looking forward to Doom Patrol number eight. This is kind of, I think, the first issue of the new creative, uh, new uh, story arc on Doom Patrol by Gerard Way and art by Nick Darrington. I've really loved the series so far. And the main hook, I think, for issue eight for me in this upcoming story arc is early in the series, the main character, Casey Brink, her cat runs away, her cat named Lotion, like runs away and disappears, and they can't find her. And then the end of issue seven, you see this anthropomorphized cat, like a cat with human arms and legs and body, but the cat head, uh, wearing like a leather jacket and a hoodie, like sneak up behind Casey Brink's apartment. So it's like, is that Lotion? And if so, how did this cat become a cat person? And why are they hanging out in the alley behind her apartment? There's a whole mystery there that I'm looking forward to exploring, and it feels very, very Doom Patrol to me. So find out what happens there. And plus, there's a whole other storyline about this new product called um, Shit that's showing up on store uh, shelves, and people can't get enough of shit. And I guess apparently this story arc will find out what shit is and why people can't get enough of it. Again, a very uh, solid (laughs) Doom Patrol type story. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Well, um, next week is a wicked, a wicked week. It's Wicked and Divine number 31. <laughs> so obviously I'm very excited for everyone to read that because I've had to sit here suffering in silence as I always do because for my <laughs> job, I tend to have to take a look at them a little early to get uh, get them ready for everyone to read them online. And yeah, it's... Uh, it's a really hard life. <laughs> yeah, must be tough. <laughs> well, you know, if you can't talk about the thing that you love, it's like super yeah. frustrating because then you're just sitting on all your emotions for a few weeks and then it just builds up and you just want to <laughs> scream about it and you know you can't. And it's like- I can scream about the fact that on the cover of this issue, Woden is like, Wodenized Mr. Darcy in his like frock coat and I just really appreciate Jamie giving that to us as a gift that sounds beautiful yeah it's pretty neat I hope somebody cosplays it at New York Comic Con so throwing that out there everybody Tia will give you a sticker if you cosplay this specific thing (laughs) (laughs) excuse my ignorance um, but is there a an end goal for this series or is it just is it an ongoing or have Oh yeah, no. Gillen said it's going to end at a certain point. He said he thinks it's going to be between forty and sixty, probably closer to forty. And I mean, they've been very, very upfront since the very beginning about the end goal, which is that everyone dies. 
<laughs> well, yeah, it's part I, of the premise, I guess, of yeah, the, the, the story. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe things will turn out differently for some of them. I we we've, we've hmm. already lost a few along the way. <laughs> uh, one of these days, I'll get around to reading the whole thing. So we'll see. Yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah, I have re- like five copies of the first hardcover. <laughs> if you need to borrow one, okay. I know where to go if I need to read it. Yeah. It's really gorgeous. And I think because you haven't been reading it and you have the ability to go through 30 issues without having to wait for them, it's like, you know, it'll be like a little more satisfying than just being like, but where is the next one? I think, yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, I read like the first, I think I read the first six or seven issues and I really enjoyed it. But I got this thing where I felt it would make more sense to read it in a big chunk. Like waiting month to month, I think was kind of throwing me off of it. So I think reading it in one big chunk like that might suit this type of story better for me. Yeah, you definitely feel the need to go back a lot when stuff is revealed and you're like, oh my God, this is, they've been seeding this for like 10 <laughs> issues. How could I have been so blind? This week on the show, we wanted to talk about what we're calling B-sides, and that's sort of our all-encompassing term for backup stories, letters pages, back matter essays, process pages, extra cool stuff that you find in the back of your books. So uh, I don't even know whose idea this topic was. Do you guys know who recommended this one? Nope, but it's a good yep. one, so I'm glad it's to be talking one. about it. Yeah, so we're just we're just going to sort of jump right in and talk about sort of our favorite extras that you find in the back matter, what works, what doesn't work, things like that. I want to start by saying that, you know, the the obvious thing for um comic readers these days is that you know, a lot of back matter is an incentive to get you to buy the monthly single issues of the books. And I know that many, many people um, trade weight, um, like wait for the collected editions of comics, which I completely sympathize with because it's just like easier to read a whole bunch of the issues at a time. But the way that the comics industry in the United States is still structured is that in order for a book to even get to that point, people enough people need to be buying the single issues month to month. So the material that is like the incentive to get people to buy the single issues is, you know, some people get like annoyed that they have to buy the single issues in order to get it, but you kind of need to buy the single issues in order to have the trade. So it's like this weird cycle, but the extra material is like cool anyways. So it's definitely worth checking out if you're a grumpy trade waiter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that I think the idea is that it's an incentive to buy the single issues. So if it's important to you, then that's what you should be doing instead of trade waiting. I know that when I got back into reading comics regularly, God, about 10 years ago now, I read Criminal by uh, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. And that was one of the first books where I noticed that where they would made a big point to say, yeah, all this backup material in the single issues is not going to be in the trades. And that kind of made up my mind then to say, well, I'm going to stick with single issues by and large. And I think 
to this day, Brubaker uses the backup material in a really smart way. It's that he uses the what used to be the letters page in these issues of you know criminal or kill or be killed to tell you what he's been working on, projects he has coming up, other books he's read recently, movies he's enjoyed recently, and there's always like an essay by another writer about like noir film or genre film. So it's like something you wouldn't necessarily get in a comic book. It's like an additional little bit of research or something different to read. And I've really found that that's just as enjoyable sometimes as the issue itself, those little backup essays in those issues. I totally understand, too, why they don't always collect them in the trade. They, I think, want to keep trades around a certain price point, particularly image trades, I think tend to be around like 10, 12 bucks. And it just gets expensive to add all these extra pages, you know? Yeah. And um, I mean, trades themselves also sometimes have their own incentive or added bonus where you'd have, they'll collect all the variant covers that went along with the single issues in the back of the trade, or sometimes they'll do, you know, script pages or uh, preliminary art sketches and stuff. So there's there's bonuses in each format, but I think the single issue B sides, as we're calling it here for this, this is always more interesting to me than what usually ends up in trades. Are there and, any? Oh, go ahead, Kara. No, I was thinking about how, um, you know, you in our offline conversations, you've periodically reminded me of how great the like extra stories in a lot of the Gillen McKelvey collaborations are and I remember when I was first reading Phonogram because I really liked the first few issues of The Wicked and the Divine and you said oh definitely read Phonogram and I read them the collected editions for the first two volumes and then you were telling me like oh you missed out on all the extra stories I'm like what are you talking about why (laughs) and I forget do they have the glossaries in the trades they do right um like where they talk about the songs that they referenced yeah because it's just like such insider baseball (laughs) I like maybe but the extra like b-side one pager comics were not there. Yeah. And what I love so much about them, I mean, it's just such a genius idea, especially for a creative team who has some like weight behind them. You know, like people, maybe not when Phonogram first came out, maybe they were still like on the rise. But at this point, like if, if Jamie and Kieran support something, like people notice and I think it's really neat to use your influence to give other people a leg up, you know, and so the B-sides are a really good way to give exposure to other creators. Like there was a really beautiful B-side, I think by Jamaica Dwyer, and I was just like, wow, I'm checking out all of this stuff now because I discovered this new artist that I might not ever have seen otherwise. Yeah, so those stories, do they do they tie into the the main story? Of the the issues, or is it completely separate? Because um, I think that's another distinction. Only in that uh, it's it's sometimes the characters, but it's always like phonomantic in some way. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah, so I think and, that's another. Oh no! In oh. in Wictive during the commercial suicide arc, where it was all guest artists, they would have <laughs> Jamie and Matt do like a a, a like two page B side just to keep them on, you know, on the radar. And um, those were, those did tie in. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think that's, 
another aspect here where some creative teams and some creators have been able to use backup stories and single issues to flesh out the main stories. And I have to imagine that that is essential when they're collecting it. But it's always kind of interesting to see the dichotomy and how they're able to kind of do that. I think Scott Snyder's really good at that. His initial run on Batman when he was doing detective comics, where you'd have the main story and then the backup of each issue was fleshing out uh, the uh, like a, the B story of the main story. That makes sense. <laughs> See, the A story was like the main comic, and then the B, the backup material was kind of fleshing out a smaller B story that was going at the same time. He's doing that right now with uh, All Star Batman. So, those are issues. Obviously, have a bigger page count, therefore bigger price. But you're kind of getting more bang for your buck, so to speak, because you're getting basically a bigger story with this backup material. And I think that's something that if a backup story in a comic doesn't really relate that much to the main story, I don't see the point of really doing it other than just inflating the price of the issue. So it's more like a director's cut that way. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to, uh, invest in B sides as a, as a, I don't know, almost like a sampler way to kind of, broaden your your uh <laughs> orbit of uh no, I mean, of creators think, and stuff like you know you it's all you, yeah. you won't always pick find your fate new favorites but um mm-hmm. no i mean it, it's kind of like series by series or creator by creator i mean i know that there's a backup story that's been running in mother panic and i don't think i've actually read any of it just because i took a look at it and the art didn't really grab me so i just skipped it as much as i love the main story in mother panic i don't think i really read any of the backup those comics that they have. And then on the other hand, that's one of the main reasons I started reading Cave Carson as a cybernetic guy was because of the backup story. It was Tom Scioli doing these little two or three page little comics at the back of each issue. And that alone was enough to get me to buy the issue itself. And that, luckily enough, I liked Cave Carson as a story down the road. But I mean, the, my initial thing was to find creators that I liked doing stuff I liked. In this instance, it happened to be in a backup story. I like, what about... Sorry, continue. Go ahead, Kara. Oh, no, I was going to say, I like Back Matter where it's like like commentary almost. So I'm thinking specifically of, like, for whatever reason, a lot of the series that Image Comics publishes that tend to be about magic, the creators of the various books seem to get, like, really into explaining, like, what kind of research they did and, like, what mythology they're, like, pulling from and... I always find that stuff really fascinating because I don't always know exactly like where all these like mythological, magical, cultural references are coming from. Um, so books like like Black Magic or Wayward or I think the other one I'm thinking of is Mythic. And they just have all of this really cool like like a paragraph about a creature that they introduced and like it's usually stuff that I have never even heard of before. So it's kind of like I'm learning something while enjoying a fun story. <laughs> yeah. The creators are saying, well, don't take my word for it. Don't, here's my research. So. Yeah. Show your work creators. <laughs> <laughs> I love that stuff too. It's like, like yeah. you, director's commentary, like you said. And um, I also really like when the artists ha- include uh, annotated process pages like it's cool to see the process pages but I really love when they're annotated because I want to know what you're thinking like I know what I'm thinking 
And I don't necessarily need you to tell me what to think about the pages, but I'm still curious to see what the creators themselves are putting into the pages in terms of like their thought process, their intellectual underpinning for why they do what they do. Yeah, the DC's Young Animal books, I just you know mentioned them not too long ago, but they've been doing a really interesting thing now where they've had the colorists for the books go through their process. So it'll be like a two-page spread where they say like, here's the original art, here's the my flat color flats, here's how I like it. Make make the colors match the scene, match the tone of the story. So you're getting a peek inside the creative process. Is that whole director's commentary type thing where you actually get to see the work that goes into your comic, which I think in the past has always kind of been invisible. So these backup like like that kind of reemphasizes just how much work goes into your monthly issues. Totally. That's one of the reasons I had to buy the hardcover Hawkeye is because they mm. had, you know, Matt Hollingsworth's process and his palettes and, and, you know, I don't remember whose playlists they included, like their work playlists. I don't remember which part of the creative team um, had put those in, but just it's so neat to, to get that kind of insight. And we, especially with the colorists, because I think that a lot of people don't really understand what colorists do. Mm hmm. Yeah, any kind of page breakdown um, as part of the back matter has always kind of reemphasized to me how, like, like you guys were saying, lots of different people work on a book. Like, it's easy to think, oh, well, someone's writing it and someone's drawing it, but it's like maybe there was a penciler and then a different inker and a color, and maybe that colorist used like an assistant to do their color flats and then the letterer had to go over everything and it's just like so many layers to getting this finished page you know you also have commentary like what they do in bitch planet where they get scholars or you know other prominent voices to to write an essay that thematically ties in and is a sort of thematic framework for reading and thinking about the comic but also more broadly applicable like to life you know like things about intersectional feminism and the prison industrial complex and stuff like that that um these are all issues that obviously bitch planet is is grappling with but you know like kara we were talking during the break about the abortion thing and you were like i don't really seek out a lot of commentary on that and, you know, I think that probably that's true of a lot of people on, you know, really deeply political issues. And Bitch Planet is just like made out of those issues, you know. And and so I think that it's really smart to give people the tools. Not It's not telling them what to think. It's just it's helping them understand these these uh words and phrases and concepts and then they can you know think critically for themselves about how it applies yeah the the bitch planet back matter and essays in particular i know have been hugely educational and informative for me because it it is very much like okay you just read this entertaining story and maybe you saw some parallels between the world that you live in and the world that we're creating here. And also like, here's Dr. So-and-so to explain to you exactly why you felt uncomfortable by that scene. (laughs) And uh, it just like provides more than I would even think to um, interpret. And I think that stuff like that, it, it highlights just how personal 
the stories and the characters are to the creators. And I think that really helps create a sense of connection between the reader and the creator. And I think we kind of take that for granted sometimes in this day of social media where you can just interact with their creators on Twitter or follow them wherever. But when someone goes, takes the time to write an essay at the back of their comic or to track someone down to write an essay, presents a different opinion, that I think shows an even deeper appreciation for the reader on the side of the creator and it fosters that connection. I think since we don't really have traditional letter pages anymore in a lot of comics, that type of backup material where it's a platform for the creator to say, here's what I think and here's where you can contact me. And let's make this comic part of the conversation and not just something you buy and read. That's really valuable. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of comics that that are active participants in fostering a certain community around the comic and they do use <laughs> the back matter pages for that. Like when they share fan art or cosplay pictures or, you know, I've seen books that where they share like someone came up with a knitting pattern for, to make <laughs> like a, a beanie with the character's logo and, you know, it, acknowledging the that kind of fan engagement with the book and putting it in a in a place where other fans can see it and maybe connect with each other or just in, just know that 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 level of engagement is happening not just in their own you know head like I think that that's a, a you could take a cynical view of it and say like that's really good marketing but you know I think <laughs> I think that comics people while we all acknowledge that we need to make a living feel like comics is a community and we are citizens of that community and need to fo- you know foster it and keep it healthy and i think that's a really healthy thing to do mm-hmm. yeah i i don't always read all the same comics that people i know in person are reading so for me letters pages and fan art pages and similar things that celebrate that community just kind of remind me that I'm not alone in my appreciation of the story so even if I don't have someone to talk to face to face about it I can still know that like some girl in the middle of Oklahoma is reading the same thing and also liking it and just kind of like knowing that other people like me are out there I'm like okay yeah yeah life is pretty good and you can do that on social media but there's something extremely validating about having it memorialized in the book I think there's always going to be a, a, I don't know how the right word to, to right word way to phrase it, but a cult of the the object, the cult of the issue. You know, comics, no matter how digital they become or trade collected they become, there's always a sort of aura about the issue itself standing alone. I think these types of interaction with fans on letter pages or these backup material, that's that's an out, outgrowth of that. You know, it's 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 a valuable part of the book, and it's saying this isn't just a story you're reading and, and consuming. But it's it's uh, there's an object there's a there's a cult of that object to it that makes that printed letter mean something that just a tweet wouldn't. If that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's memorializing it and it's also legitimizing mm-hmm. it in a way because it's like you know basically the creators are saying, you know, yes, this person is talking about our book in a way that we want other people to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's I mean that's the root of nerd culture as much as I hate that term but fan culture it's rooted in that and there's you know if you go back comic books really were a way for fans across the country and across the world to find each other 
before the internet, you know. So letters, pages, people would put their addresses and then people would start being pen pals because they like the same comics. And I don't think that's ever really changed. Comics has always had that small, rabid fan base that wants to communicate and share ideas with each other. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be mistaken, so please feel free to (laughs) correct me on Twitter harshly if I'm wrong about this, but... I, if I'm remembering this right, didn't Wendy and Richard Peeney first, like, Richard noticed her on in a letters page or something? I could be wrong. That sounds right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Either way, it's a super hmm. adorable idea. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> yeah. that it's happened. I'm sure that it's happened. I mean, Absolutely. you know, they're uh, in, not to keep bringing up the wicked and the divine but they do have great back matter and there's a, a, a they have a, sometimes they have a letters page sometimes they don't have enough room but when they do they almost always have a letter from someone named cam and cam is amazing at this point cam is like another member of the pantheon except hopefully not going to die in two years <laughs> and um, is a and not a horrible person i think cam is pretty lovely people uh can back me up on that i cam has has made appearances at conventions and I and I think brought candy for people so obviously like Aww. the best person yeah <laughs> but um <laughs> you know so you could be like letters page famous even I like the the wicked and the divine um how at like the story for that month ends and then it's the creative team writing a letter to the audience and since terrible stuff generally happens in the wicked and the divine since as you said the entire premise is that everyone's going to die except you have to love them first (laughs) it's like here you just witnessed this thing that you might not have liked we know we didn't like it either but we still (laughs) made it it's okay we love you anyways and it's just like getting a hug from kieran gillen (laughs) it's like i know i tore your heart out and then i stepped on it but we're still friends <laughs> i mean i think that that witches is like that too or you know scott snyder wrote these really touching essays in the earlier at least in the earlier issues of witches you know um talking about like like really opening up about his own stuff and it's just like how can someone so lovely come up with a story so horrifying I think the first or second issue of Witches, his letter was about um, how this story came about because of his like fears related to fatherhood. Yeah. And I'm not a horror fan and I don't seek out horror and I've never quite understood why other people seek it out. But that essay in particular was like a touchstone for me where I could start to empathize with what makes horror as a genre appealing to so many people like that's the essay where i was like Mm -hmm. oh okay still not for me but like i see it now yeah we i mean oh we'll do a horror episode (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna make sure this happens but um you know yeah and he also i think opened up about like depression and and what that how that influenced the story and and also i want to say he talked about being a character at disney world I need to go back and reread that, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm sure is horrifying in and of itself. Yeah, but it's a great place to get to know the creator besides like just from the story. You wouldn't (laughs) you would never guess that Scott Snyder is such a sweet, lovely, wonderful human if you only knew him from witches. (laughs) 
and American Vampire and all of the other like man. <laughs> yeah. I like the how in some of the letter pages, um, especially for the more like creator owned books, there will sometimes be like reader surveys and then they'll publish mm-hmm. the results so you can get a sense of like who is like what your demographic is, like who besides me is reading this book? How much yeah, of a I mean, cliche am I? <laughs> <laughs> is Brian K. Vaughn does that a lot. I think he did it in Saga and he's doing it in Paper Girls where there'll always be like the survey page. And if I remember, it always says, be sure to cut this out. Like, don't just write it out in an email. Like, cut this out, write it on the page and mail it to me. I think that he's just trying to drive up sales of single issues, <laughs> right? Because you have to buy two copies <laughs> so you can cut one up. And But that, that level of interaction I've always noticed in his books. And Paper Girls is interesting because the letters page is, I think they're all made up letters. Like, I think they're all just, they're not real letters. So someone's taking the time to write these sort of fake fan letters into the book, in a sense, to give the book a, a, a weird, I don't know, weird mythology almost in the in the backup matter. I'm not sure. I noticed that too. And I wonder yeah. if maybe the first few issues were made up and then mm-hmm. people who were reading it kind of like caught on and got the idea and started sure. sending in their own. That'd probably make a lot more sense. But yeah, I remember reading the first couple issues like, there's no way these are real letters. Right? Meta letters and so. also meta ads are pretty great. Like um, yeah. Southern Cross has them. I want to say Motor Crush has them hmm. where hmm. they're like in universe ads. Bitch Planet definitely has. Yeah, Bitch Planet had them. Oh God, the Bitch Planet uh, like page on the back with like the classified ads. Those are amazing. Those are so funny. I mean, they're also like, I want to die because this is like so funny, but also true. But um, they're so, in fact, people like some of them was like, you could send away for stuff like literal, like, like dumb stuff, like send away for, and we'll like redesign your signature, like things like that. Um, And people actually like sent away for them. And so Kelly soon <laughs> send them stuff back. <laughs> She's like, you guys, this is literal garbage, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there are there, we've named a few, but are there creators or books you think have the most valuable or most interesting backup matter that we could, uh, I think that's kind of what we've hinted at the whole conversation, but maybe just to, to give people a heads up. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's got to be a phonogram because uh, especially since I, am a big fan of Britpop so I already like mm-hmm. I didn't need the glossaries but the glossaries were so fucking funny that um, those and then the B-side stories just they're so good and I, I discovered so many other artists that I liked from them which was really valuable for me I would say the Bitch Planet Back Matter is my favorite because it's such a robust mix of different materials every time yeah, I think uh, the Ed Brubaker series, uh, Kill Be Killed, the current one, and then all those previous ones, like uh, Criminal and such, he finds these people to write these really interesting essays about genre films, and they're films I never would have gone on my way to watch, but it's kind of nice to have a different perspective. Say, hey, here's these noir films that are important historically, or maybe interesting, or... So I think it's it's something that... I, a topic I never would have gone on my way to find more about, but because it was the back of a comic book, I learned something. Oh, 
Another one that I have to mention, it's like, I don't know if it's really widely available yet, but I backed it on Kickstarter and so I got a PDF of the first issue of Short Order Crooks by Christopher Sabela and he actually has recipes and I cooked one and it was so delicious. It was like barbecue jackfruit tacos. It was amazing. So um, I hope there, I think he plans to have recipes in the back matter of Short Order Crooks, which uh, if they're anything like the first one are going to be really good. That sounds great. I have to say, I think we're very fortunate to be at a moment in comics where we can be so discerning about back matter. Like, (laughs) Like, I've definitely seen some books where, like, the back matter is, like, here are 10 pages of just the book that you've already read, but it's just the pencils or it's just the inks. And I'm like, really? That's all you have? And I'm sure, like, you know for some people that's fine but because i've like seen so much of the different back matter that's out there i'm just like why isn't there any context like why don't you just have like i'd rather have a character turnaround or like a concept sketch than just the page that i already saw but with less stuff on it i think the only time i would be like super into that is if they have a different penciler and a different inker and a different color like and so that would be neat because I I would be curious to see like what each individual artist does without the next step overlaid onto it in a way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I agree. Annotate yeah. that shit. Yeah, like we can totally <laughs> tell when you're phoning it in for back matter. We've got our eyes on you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are there any books that you wish had more robust back matter? Maybe their creators are listening or will call us and we can convince them to take our advice i think that there could be more for the big two like so Mm. like statistically more people read dc and marvel comics than are reading a lot of the indie titles and i spent like a good six years basically exclusively reading dc and then the last few years i've been reading like more marvel and especially for books like Hawkeye and Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, there has been more Marvel back matter that's like mostly just like a letters page, but they'll put in some fan art and stuff. But I just feel like since that's where, like there's this huge section of the comic audience that are exclusively reading one or both of the big two and are just totally missing out on this sense of community and celebration of the fans that indie books really strive to cultivate. And I just feel like sorry for people who don't have a robust me- back so matter. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. But they, but you know, Kara, it's okay because they do get a giant Eminem ad interrupting the flow of their story. <laughs> I just think like, you know, if you read, if you read just DC or just Marvel or just the two of them, like, you deserve better. You should demand more from those Love publishers. <laughs> I think that's definitely true of uh, Marvel. I mean, Marvel has great writers working for them, like Ahmed Saladin on Black Bolt and uh, Tanasi Coates on Black Panther. Like, they should be able to write a solid two-page essay at the back of uh, any of their comics, right? Instead of just having a letters page. It seems like the perfect opportunity to do something like that. Exactly. It's like, I understand you're closely guarding your IPs and stuff, but maybe I want to know what your thoughts were for this one specific scene about Batman. Or maybe like mm-hmm. you went through different costume changes for Spider-Gwen for this issue that didn't quite make it. Like, I want to see that stuff. 
you know what? I'm just going to say it as a company that thinks it's controversial to like not make Captain America a Nazi. I think we're asking a lot of Marvel right now. Like, come on. We can't I demand expect- better. <laughs> we can't expect Marvel to let creators like use their words and their and think for themselves in for the good of the comics community because like that would just th- break the space-time continuum. I believe that if we as a comics community rise up and demand better material that we can possibly get that or I'll just keep reading indie comics <laughs> yeah i have to say i i mean i st- i still read america and there's some star wars titles that i read but i went from all marvel to very little marvel in the past year well, or so that's actually an interesting point so like i was talking about how excited i am for captain phasma earlier like back matter for that book that i would be interested is like how did this comics creative team have to fit this story into the wider Star Wars continuum since Disney is so like careful about how they incorporate all their stories and making everything part of this cohesive narrative and this cohesive universe. Like what was that process like? Were there any, was there anything that you had to like take back or was there something that you were specifically told maybe like hint at a spoiler without saying what the spoiler is? Like that's what I want. Hmm. What about you, Paul? You know, I'm trying to think and um, this Probably a long shot, but I, I really I really want Grant Morrison to first off write more comics and then second off have the opportunity to write the backup material. Because one of the reasons I collected all of his Doom Patrol run in single issues is because he would often write essays in the letters column that fleshed out the ideas in the actual story. And I don't think those have been collected in the actual trades. And then same thing he did with uh, you know, his infamous letters column in The Invisibles where he encouraged all of the readers to perform a sex magic ritual to yes. help increase the sales. That's what I, mean, I that's want. Something, that's what you want. You want more Grant Morrison first off and more Grant Morrison essays. I just read an essay he wrote for Heavy Metal Magazine. I was like, I've forgotten how much I enjoyed just hearing him pontificate on topics was. So whatever he does next, hopefully he gets a bunch of pages in the back to explain it in his own words. Or just like, don't even use words and just make a bunch of like <laughs> weird sigil magic, like patterns that we're supposed to figure out. That would be amazing. I amazing. think that, that kind of thing would have been really helpful to me when he was doing all the DC, like final crisis era stuff in the late two thousands. Like I read all of that shit religiously and understood exactly none of it. So I would have really enjoyed, <laughs> a helping hand through all of that (laughs) i agree i agree or like a magic sigil you could draw on your forehead then you would understand see i would be into that too yeah let's go back in time and have dc approve (laughs) grant morrison to just go off on a rant like take out the ads and have like charge an extra dollar or two for the book for a version that has grant morrison just going on a five-page rant Oh my god, yes. I love it. Yes. How do we fix comics in every single episode? I don't know. Like, I would do that. I would pay a premium to have an ad-free issue with more back matter. <laughs> That's genius. I fixed yeah. it. Yeah. I fixed I comics. We, we solved it. Good job, guys. <laughs> You can follow us all on Twitter. I am at Portrait of Madame X. I am at Karazam, so at K-A-R-A-S-Z-A-M. You can find me at Pauly. that's O-H-H-I-P-A-U-L-I-E. You can also find 
my other podcast, Spike Pile Driver, a professional wrestling podcast at Spike Pile Pod, if you're so inclined. And you can follow the I Read Comic Books podcast at IRCB Podcast. We retweet stuff and post polls, uh, usually kind of making fun of stuff that Mike does. It's a lot of fun. You can also check out our Goodreads group where we have weekly threads, uh, a book that we do monthly on the show, discussions in general, etc. And ircbpodcast.com is our website. You can find more information about that. You can find old episodes. You can find our Twitters. And most importantly, please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends about the show. It's the best way to get the show uh, out into the world. Share it with those who you love, hopefully because you love them. And the show is great. You can email us uh, to tell us that we're wrong about Wendy and Richard Peeney meeting at <laughs> a letters page, or tell us how much you loved us, or anything that you want to share with us at ircb at destroythesibe.org please reach out. We love talking to you. Infinity Shred is the best band in the whole universe. They do our music and we would be lost without them. We would also be lost without Xander, the wizard of audio, the wonder child of the cosmos, bringing light and laughter into the world. He edits the show beautifully. We we couldn't do it without him. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Also, can I just say that, Tia, while you said that our email is ircb at destroythesibe.org, this is literally the first time that I've realized that if you take out the dot, it's just at destroythesibeorg. <laughs> I have literally never realized that before, so thank you. <laughs> That's a g- There you go, everyone. That's the way to remember it. <laughs> thank you all for listening. Tune that in was next great week back for matter. more. Good back matter, Kara. <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm all good, so I'll just hang. Okay. Cool. Well, we we managed to fit feminism in regardless of the topic change. I knew you'd do it. (laughs) I'm I'm actually I'm like, is it just me? Because you would think that more people would be talking about that. I don't know if I'm just like overly sensitive about it, but it I was like, what am I reading right now? Yeah. I mean that is honestly like the specific point that you made is not one that really would have occurred to me at all um and that's just because like you said abortion is such a politicized topic that it just like i don't know it like makes me uncomfortable to really think about it too much even though i know that's a really obnoxious and privileged thing to think but i like don't actively seek out information on either side because i'm just like but i don't want to deal with that yeah um i mean i just i can't imagine it seems like otherwise such a profoundly liberal book you know since there's like like a like a shocking glaring thing for you while reading it i'm sure yeah yeah it's like you've got interracial marriage you've got you know, the horrors of war, you've got, um, 
you know, Alana goes through her like drug phase. <laughs> There's, you know, like how are you, how is a family? What does a family look like? There's a trans character. There's like a lot of sex. There's a lot of like, you know, there's like people being rescued from sex slavery. It's like so much liberal stuff. And then, hmm? well, I mean, that character of Marco is always been tough for me. I, I gave up on Saga, I think Saga, I think maybe issue 30 or so. It was right after the whole uh, drug storyline. Yeah. Which is kind of enough for me. And I just, the way that Marco as a character handled all that, I found very different from the rest of the book. It felt straight. It didn't feel like the same character or yeah. the same book, the way those issues were handled. And I dropped the book and I haven't looked back. And it's probably the same thing where it just it feels so out of character, out of place in the book. Yeah, I kind of also dropped off around or immediately after the the drug part. But also that's just because like Saga is such a gorgeous book. But like, like similar to Paul, what you're saying about Wickdiv, I feel like between issues I kind of lose track of what's been happening and when I sit down and read it in chunks it's like much more satisfying and I kind of like that the two main characters like are super not compatible because I feel like that's just going with the whole premise that they like had this whirlwind like passion fueled romance and got married and had a kid and then we're like oh fuck we like don't actually have a lot in common what do we do now <laughs> yeah yeah huh yeah i don't know I, I, I don't miss the book and it's it's interesting to hear people they're still reading it i don't think there there's the enthusiasm for it doesn't seem to be there and i'm not sure why so i think that uh, maybe it's some someone uh, uh, go ahead oh sorry um I think it's because like I remember when Saga first came out everyone was like flipping out because it was so different and so unusual but then because it was so successful some comic publishers became braver about what they decided to publish and back and so then we got like this huge explosion of really high quality stories that people weren't really used to seeing and there was like more to choose from so I think after that it's it's like easier to say like oh okay saga's maybe not the greatest thing but it did kind of trigger all these other greater things oh definitely yeah Yeah. i think yeah saga's gotten to a point where it's like it wins every award every freaking year and we all just kind of have to like it you know (laughs) i mean like um yeah i don't know Mm -hmm. i agree with you though Kara. it 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 was it it had a, a really important impact at one time but i think that the rest of that like things are starting to catch up to it and so it it seems less unique mm-hmm. i haven't read read i haven't watched twin peaks but i read i've mm-hmm. been reading like lots of articles about it and my understanding is that when twin peaks like the original series was on tv everyone was like what is this weird shit and like no one was ready for it but it is like the template that every TV series that we think is great has done since. So it was like the groundbreaking thing. But when people watch it now, they're like, oh, this is just normal. But at the time, it was totally insane and different. So that's kind of how Saga feels now. That's a pretty fair comparison, I would say. As a uh, diehard Twin Peaks fan, I can definitely (laughs) see that that connection. So, Mm 